Okay, thanks to the organizers for a great opportunity to share ideas and catch up with the latest in the field. So we've just been uh, hearing one kind of approach, um, which is um, based on the hard evidence. And what I want to do is to give uh, another kind of approach to this problem that amazingly we still haven't really sorted out, which is that compared to other animals, we have a problem in identifying this key feature of what it is that characterizes the biology of the species. So if you want to understand a flea, then think about the fact that it survives by eating blood and dolphins on fish and giraffes on tree leaves. So what is the fundamental diet of humans? I want to suggest that um, we get away from some of the traditional thinking to some extent. So traditional thinking, I think of as including these components, uh, that a really important part of the diet is um, meat, or, or more generally, uh, stuff that comes from animals. Uh, it can be some invertebrates. Um, another uh, very popular approach is to think about the fact uh, that you have an increase in variability of the human diet. I actually think in some ways that's right, and in other ways it's wrong. And then uh, there's the question of how much benefit could our ancestors have got by processing their food without fire, by using the, the growing lithic technology to be able to chop and pound and open their foods. Those, I'm sure, all got their importance. Uh, I want to focus on this last one, which is the idea that uh, cooking, and more generally, the control of fire, has been hugely important in enabling us to conquer the world and even to survive in Africa for hundreds of thousands of years before we conquered the world. So in order to set this up, let me remind you what others have said, which is that energy does seem to be a key goal of feeding. In fact, in many ways, you can regard life as a system by which things find energy and use it to make more of themselves. This is a typical little graph coming from uh, our own studies of chimpanzees in, in Uganda, but it could be uh, one that applies to all sorts of different studies, where what you see is that as a slightly better food intake is obtained, in this case because of seasonal variation or where a female just happens to live, then you get a big effect in terms of reproduction. So 5% more ripe fruit in the diet, and your interbirth interval is four months shorter. This is the sharp edge of where evolution is acting. A little bit more energy, you get higher genetic fitness. Okay, so we heard from Alyssa Crittenden that uh, the diet of the Hadza hunter-gatherers is diverse, but that the main features are starchy foods, meat, and honey. What I want to suggest is that each of these, in very important ways, depends on the control of fire for human ability to use them. Now, it is certainly the case, and it's been known for uh, something like 150 years, that if you survey all of the peoples in the world, you find that everybody cooks their food on a very regular basis. It's very difficult to find any cases where anybody has gone as many as 24 hours without cooking. And the generalization that I found is that the evening meal is a routine cooked thing. So you find that there are some foods that are eaten raw, and, and very often what these are are foods that are eaten while hunters and gatherers are out looking for food. And in 
some cases, it's just difficult to whip up a fire, for instance, if you are an Inuit out on the ice. But when they get back home, they really want to have their food cooked. And the other perspective I want to bring to this is that contemporaneously, it is very difficult to find evidence of people being able to thrive on raw food. Now, this might surprise you because some of you might be raw foodists and some of you might know raw foodists. But look at uh, the data here. On the right-hand side, what you see is uh, data for uh, raw foodists um, with uh, the best data being these ones, uh, a study of 572 German raw foodists, and as they increase their intake of raw food, so their body mass index, shown on this axis, declined. That is the height divided by the weight squared. And uh, all of the raw foodists have got a low body mass index compared to those eating their food cooked. You might be saying, well, what about the meat aspect? Well, uh, if we look at those who eat their food cooked, it is true that those who are eating their uh, food with meat do have a somewhat higher body mass index than those who've been vegetarian for a number of years. But um, even uh, raw foodists do eat some meat, and uh, we can look at the effect of this on uh, their body mass index, and we find that there is no difference among the raw foodists in the effect of in the presence of meat in their diet as to their body mass index. So what we're seeing here is that, yeah, meat eating helps a little bit, but not nearly as much as cooking your food. Okay, well, um, nevertheless, could, uh, could humans uh, do well? They might just be a bit thin. Well, think about this. Uh, every animal that we know of, other than humans, eats their food raw every day, of course, uh, like chimpanzees, and they produce babies uh, eating uh, those raw foods. What about humans? Here are the data from that German study. And in the German study, what we see is that as the amount of uh, food eaten raw increases up to 100%, 50% of women by that point are amenorrheic. Their menstrual cycles have closed down altogether. And this appears to be because they are short of energy. And another 20% had subfecund cycles. Now, the remarkable thing about this is that we're dealing with a population here that is doing incredible things to their foods. They're using electric processes to blend and grind and uh, sometimes even dry their foods up to 114 degrees, uh, which is the legitimate uh, temperature if you're a raw foodist. Um, remember, they're using domesticated food, which is much less fiber, um, much less uh, toxins, much higher levels of digestible carbohydrates than uh, the wild foods. Uh, they are including some meat. They sometimes uh, include a fair amount of oil, which is not too natural. They're eating from the, the global food resource. So there's never a point at which there is any shortage of food supplies for them. They can eat from the tropics if the temperate regions are not doing well. And, uh, and of course, they have relatively low activity compared to most hunters and gatherers. And yet, the average woman cannot have a baby. This seems to me to say that if a woman was trying to eat raw food in the wild, then many more than the average woman would not be able to have a baby, and therefore that our species is different from every other because we are adapted to eating cooked food. We need it. Why? So I'm going to go through quickly the three elements of the food supply, uh, starch, meat, and honey, that Alyssa recognizes as being very important for the Hadza. 
Now, with starch, we have known for some time that if you cook starch, then it becomes more easily digested. And this graph from 1981 is an example of that, where if people were fed cooked cornstarch versus raw cornstarch, you could see the effect on the change in glucose levels in the blood. They also compared what happens if you actually eat glucose. Well, eating cooked cornstarch has a rise in glucose that is very similar to the effect of eating glucose. So it's very easily digested. The raw cornstarch is not. So this is the difference between a high glycemic food, the cooked, and a low glycemic food, the raw. But the question is, and people often continue to debate this question, uh, is it possible that all this is showing is how quickly the digestion happens? And that in the end, if you followed this curve along for several more hours, that the raw cornstarch would eventually all produce glucose in the blood, and so it would just be a wash. There'd be no difference. So the question is, what happens to the raw starch? Okay, now, here we have a problem. When uh, my colleagues and I first produced a paper about this uh, in 1999, we were told by some people that the, our idea that cooked starch was more productive of energy than raw was probably wrong because the raw starch is, in, in the end, fermented in the large intestine. The microbiome produces short-chain fatty acids from long-chain carbohydrates in the colon. Okay, well, how important is that? The only way to get at this is to understand the difference between fecal digestibility, which is how much of the food is remaining after you look in the feces, compared to ileal digestibility. And the reason is that different digestive processes happen in the small and the large intestine. The way to get at ileal digestibility, the digestibility by the end of the small intestine, is to take advantage of people who, for some medical misfortune, have lost their large intestine. And then the small intestine, the ileum, is brought to the surface of the abdomen and is emptied into a bag, a stoma. So these ileostomy patients allow researchers to see what has happened to food that they've eaten by the time it has gone completely through the small intestine. And this leads to the following data. These, I think, are the entire data set of what we know about the ileal digestibility of human-eaten starch. And what you see, for example, is uh, with a green banana, that if the food is eaten raw, then in the ileostomy patients, you find that only 47% of it has been digested. 53% comes through undigested to the end of the small intestine. Whereas if it's cooked, 99% comes through, 99% uh, uh, is digested, and um, only 1.2% comes through. So this is, these are big differences. Now, what do we make of these? Well, now the problem is the food that goes into the large intestine, what happens to it? We don't know. You might find that there's nothing left when you look in the feces. Okay, it's all been fermented, broken down by the bacteria. But how many of those short-chain fatty acids cross the gut wall to be used by us, and how many remain with the bacteria to be used only by the bacteria? The current estimate is 50%. Anything where the estimate is 50% means you just don't know. But there is a bit of logic behind the 50%. So if we say the 50%, then this leads to a median 30% increase in digestibility of the carbohydrates as, as a result of being eaten cooked compared to raw. 
And uh, recently, um, in our lab, uh, Rachel Kalmodi has led the first experiment to find out in a mammal what is the effect on net energy gain of eating your food cooked. And this is what she finds. Uh, comparing the effects of eating um, cooked or pounded. So these sweet potatoes are eaten raw and whole. These are eaten raw and pounded. These are eaten cooked and whole. And these are eaten cooked and pounded. And you see the difference. When they're cooked, then they maintain body weight. When they're raw, they don't. Cooked starch gave these mice more energy than when it was eaten raw. So that's starch. What about meat? She did the same experiment with meat with the same results. The mice eating cooked flourished. The mice eating raw did much more poorly. You might think it's incredibly artificial, and it sort of is, but um, mice can live on meat for quite a long time, and there are disgusting accounts of mice getting into the bodies of nestling albatrosses in the South Atlantic, where they live for some time. They kind of make a, a hole in there and nest in there and, and eat them for uh, several days. Why is it that cooking meat should be a good thing? And you see, look at the textbooks, you often find it's a bad thing for energy because there are dripping losses. OK, well, you can try and minimize the dripping losses. But the basic reason seems to be that uh, there is going to be denaturation. So here what we see is, I think, the only experiment where we have some evidence about the digestibility of a protein, uh, raw and cooked. And again, we're using ileostomy patients. In the case of the starches, you can actually look microscopically and see the presence of the starch grains. Here what you're doing is looking for uh, isotopically labeled eggs. And um, so the eggs have been laid by isotopically labeled chickens. And uh, what you find is uh, this big difference between raw and cooked. There's a cunning way of using healthy volunteers to mimic the uh, result. Still small samples, but still you see the overall impact. It looks pretty big. And here, as far as I think it's fair to say, the latest data show, uh, we can use this as a direct readout of the increase in energy because the proteins that go into the large intestine do not have energetic significance for the body. Now, again, there's a little bit of debate about this, and it may turn out that there is some, in which case we'll have to change these figures. But anyway, they're not much help for meat because these are eggs. And uh, no one has yet done a meat experiment where we can see directly the effect of cooking on uh, the bioavailability, digestibility of the protein. But another uh, effect does look important, too, and that is that one of the effects of cooking is to uh, increase the softness of the food. Many of you will be better cooks than I. In fact, all of you will be better cooks than I am, probably. Uh, and, and you will know that one of the aims of the cook, according to Mrs. Beaton and many other great cook uh, authorities, is to soften the food. And think about your Thanksgiving dinners. It's all incredibly soft. It, it does this uh, routinely with all foods. And softer food is easier for the body to digest. The body works less hard to break it down into the point where uh, it can be acted on physically. So we have done an experiment, again, led by uh, Rachel Carmody, in which uh, we've used open flow respirometry with rats uh, sitting in their little uh, tubes on force plates to measure their uh, activities and work out how much energy is spent by a rat in digesting its food. In hunters and gatherers, you routinely find that they treat meat like we treat hamburgers. You both cook it and you physically reduce it. So I conclude that cooked meat gives more energy than raw meat. 
the third of our categories is honey. And here we have a different phenomenon in play because honey is normally eaten raw. But I think it's just really striking that you can do experiments in captivity with the great apes, and one of the easiest ways to get them to behave in the way you want is by rewarding them with honey. They will work very hard to get honey. And in the wild, they love honey. And here is the amount of honey eating that we have now got data on from apes in the wild compared to hunters and gatherers. Savannah people here, and here are forest people, the F.A. pygmies of the Congo. And so you see here the numbers. Trivial amounts of honey eaten by the great apes. So what is going on? People use fire. So the use of smoke seems hugely important for them to be able to get this honey, which is an important part of the total caloric intake over the year, and seasonally can be very important. It can be the dominant caloric source for a month or two at a time in all of the hunters and gatherers in Africa that have been looked at, which is something like uh, in eight or nine groups. And there is this fascinating relationship with uh, honey guides. Here is indicator, indicator. And uh, this is the species that flutters in front of people taking them to honey and reducing the amount of time that they spend looking for honey. In a study in Kenya, the amount of time spent finding honey was reduced from, on average, eight hours to three hours. So saving a lot of hours per day among the Boran people. So they, they lead people to honey. They, they get uh, some benefit from it uh, in the end. There seems to be an unlearned guiding behavior because they are brood parasites. They're like cuckoos. They, they are laying their eggs in the nests of other birds so the young ones do not see their mothers and fathers. So they have to uh, produce this behavior without any opportunity to mimic uh, their, uh, to learn from their parents. And that suggests that this is evolutionarily significant, and it looks like an ancient mutualism because there is no other species. Contra your rumors that honey badgers might do this. Uh, there is no other species that has been shown to do this on a regular basis. So I like the idea that this is a, an evolved cooperation uh, indicating an ancient use of fire. And by the way, it indicates what people very often tend to deny, which is that humans uh, might be well adapted to intermittent high glycemic loads. So in summary, I think there are these four uh, big effects. I haven't been able to refer to the fourth here, but cooked starch gives lots of energy. Cooked meat gives lots of energy, but we don't know how much yet. Uh, fire gives a huge increase in the amount of honey. And um, if I had more time, I would note that four hours a day or more is saved in chewing by uh, eating your food cooked. And that means that you can go off and do other interesting things like hunting. So I'm not suggesting these other aspects aren't important, but I do think that this suggests that humans can be thought of as adapted to eating cooked food, and that uh, the control of fire, therefore, the question of when it arose in human evolution is, uh, is hugely fascinating. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah.